Let's go ahead and find our scripture passage this morning coming from our lectionary, and that's Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I believe it's on page 850 in the Black Pewback Bible, if you want to grab that. And we read from the NIV. That's what those Bibles are. That's the translation. Once you've got that, you can go ahead and stand for the reading of the word. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, Ben, can you get me a cup of water? Can you get me some water? Um, let's, Let's open this time in prayer. Lord, thank you again for this morning to celebrate and remember 12 years that Christ City Church has uh, been here in Memphis, Tennessee, has sought to, to worship you and to serve this city and to serve one another. I pray this morning as we look at the Gospel of Luke that you would enlighten our hearts, that you would uh, gently guide us into more transformation of our thinking that aligns with the kingdom of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we started a series last week, and that series is called Possessions. You can put the S on, you can take the S off, because the the idea behind this, this series is that the things that we think that we own, the accumulation of goods and the money that represents those things, the things that we call our possessions, very often possess us. They have a hold on us. 
And in American culture, we see this all over the place. We see this when we unquestioningly take the job with the higher salary, even though it might decimate the time that we can spend with our family and loved ones and in our community. Um, we believe the lie that more money means less problems, even though Biggie Smalls has been talking to us about that since the 90s. Um, and as I thought about this, I thought about another passage in Luke. We follow this uh, guide through the scriptures called the lectionary that uh, churches all over the world use. And in the book of Luke, earlier in Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells this story. Chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Thank you. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So this haunting scripture, it makes me think a lot about money and possessions because the, the point that Jesus is making there, one of the points there, is that if we try to boil things down to just removing some unwanted habit, if we think we can just get something out of the way, one single thing, and then we'll be good without replacing it with what the Bible would call righteous living, um, then we're gonna end up in a worse situation than we were in the first place. And that the way that we sort of talk about money or don't talk about money in church is very strange related to this idea. Because it's, it's not that in general money isn't talked about in church. In a lot of churches, it's talked about quite a bit. But the conversation around it is usually fairly shallow. And the scriptures parse meaning around money and possessions more than almost any other topic. It comes up constantly. So if as a church we say we want to cultivate spirituality, that's one of our eight practices, but we never talk about money. We never talk about the way that money is tethered and connected to our spiritual identities. Then it's like we're, okay, well, let's kick out this bad habit, but we're making room for seven more things to come back in because money is such a good indicator of the overall conditions of our spiritual life, of our soul. And so as I looked at the lectionary scriptures coming up at this time, it was several passages in Luke and 1 Timothy, and Robert's gonna preach on one of those next week, that had so much to do with money, so much to do with possessions. And so we're gonna take a, a look at different aspects of that as we continue the series. Last week, we started the series with a scripture called a, a sermon called Spiritual Entrepreneurship. Yeah. And uh, we talked about the creative potential inherent in the way that we use money or not to exert our will into the world around us. That, that the way that we use our finances is an expression of our will, of what we want the world to look like and feel like. And that can be harnessed and that can be channeled through our faith and through our spirituality. 
And uh, this week we're looking at this passage, this parable uh, that's dubbed the rich man and Lazarus. And we're talking about this idea of getting advice, getting advice in life. And, and who do you listen to when you get advice and, and how long does it take you to listen to good advice? There's a question for you. How, how long does it take you in life to hear good advice, say that's some good advice, and then to, to actually do something about it? <laughs> years and years, surely. Surely there's, there's lots of situations in which we say, you know what, I think I'm gonna try it my way that didn't work like 10 more times just to make sure. Just to make sure if I hit my head against that concrete wall the 10th time, it might crack, right? Um, there's so many situations being a parent in which that just happens all the time, where my, I tell my son, especially my, my son Benjamin, I'm like, Benjamin, I don't want you to do that. And he's like, but I wanna do it. Well, here's why it won't work. And he's like, but I just wanna try it anyway. And his mom's like, no, don't let him do it. And I'm like, eh, probably just gonna have to, I'd rather him do it while he's supervised with me so that I can at least put a Band-Aid on it, literally or metaphorically afterwards, than if he does it all by himself. This parable here is about a man who has received all the good advice in the world, but fails all the way up to the very end of the parable to follow any of it. And this, uh, this parable, it, it has a, a rich man, and this rich man is so rich that a lot of us probably don't relate to that guy directly. And I'm not gonna try to put us in the shoes of this rich man. Uh, oftentimes when we read these stories, we identify with whoever ends up in the best situation at the end. Like wh whoever uh, is the one that seems a little bit more moral or a little bit more righteous. So we might also want to take the seat of the poor man and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm more in his position than the rich man. I want you to, as long as you can, to try to just avoid doing that and just listen to the story, just unpack it with me and think about whose advice do we listen to related to what we do with our stuff, with our money. So let's start here. Verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Man, this is, this is a really intense scenario that we're seeing here. You know, this is a parable for a reason, right? We've got this guy, and he doesn't get a name, he's just the rich man, which by the way, that's usually the case. In the parables, usually people don't get names in Jesus' parables, and he's dressed in purple, so he's, he's dressed in some really fine fabric that in that time, the, the color purple and where it came from and how it was produced, it was a very luxurious item. And, and then he also had fine linen, so it's probably like his robe and then his under robe, and this fine linen was, it, it, it's, if you translate the word back from Greek into Hebrew, from Old Testament to New, New Testament, it's the same word described of the cloth used by the, by the priests 
that went into the temple and they only ever dressed that way when they were going into the temple. So it's this luxurious and religiously associated kind of garment that this guy is wearing daily. And it says he lived in luxury every day. And, and luxury doesn't really like cover it. The NIV kind of misses it a little bit there because this word is the same word used in Luke 12 when this other rich man in a parable is saying, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It's closer to this idea of making merriment. So like celebrating. But this guy's not celebrating the birthday of his synagogue or something like that. 12th birthday, mazel tov, right? Um, he's not celebrating religious festivals, but he's just like celebrating because he's so stinking rich and he doesn't really have to do anything. So he's dressing in his finest Armani stuff every day and he's just sitting around the table just eating the most delicious succulent food and he's making merriment. He's like, he's having a party, right? His, his uh, wireless speaker system is just bumping the whole day long. You know, he gets up at noon or whatever. He doesn't have any little kids to wake him up at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, he's just partying. And, and, and the, the listeners would have seen this parallel of these religiously seeming things because celebrating in festivals was really an important part of the culture of Judaism uh, and also the way that he was dressed. But he was just doing it all for himself, just over the top uh, selfish. And then in verse 20, it says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, a poor person, better, better translation there. And Lazarus gets a name. We get to know who he is. So for whatever reason, Jesus wanted his listeners to identify with Lazarus as like a real person, like somebody that was really hurting in life. And He's covered with sores, and it says he was laid there. He was laid at the gate of this rich man's house. So that means somebody said, somebody said to themselves, hey, there's this place we could get Lazarus to where there is somebody so well-resourced, so living in abundance, with time on their hands that maybe if we could get Lazarus in that person's vicinity where he would have to see him daily, that he might offer him some help and relief. That, I don't know what that reminds you of. It reminds me of, it reminds me of immigrants coming to America. It reminds me of people that are on the streets right now. It reminds me of uh, those who are in, in the hospital without the resources and the insurance that they need. And it says that this man, Lazarus, you're just gonna have to put up with the fact I, that I have a lisp that isn't 100% gone and it shows up mainly reading that guy's name. So it says he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The crumbs, like he just wanted crumbs. And this guy didn't give them. And it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So basically the only relief he's getting in his life is from dogs licking his wounds. 
So we might think, you know, oh, well, this is, this is, uh, this is kind of like what the culture of the day is, but it's, 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 it's really not. Even uh, this, this, this rich man is a Jew in this story, and he would have known from the Torah, from the scriptures, all of the commands about helping the poor. He would have been well informed about all of, all of the commands that if there is any poor person among you, that you should offer them help, offer them clothing, offer them food, let them glean your fields, all these types of things. He was familiar with that. But even the Roman culture, the broader Roman culture, the rich ruling class were expected to help relief with the poor. And even more so in, in Jesus's time, there is a, an, a Hebrew word, a Hebrew word that I'm gonna attempt to pronounce, uh, tzedek, tzedek, that means righteousness. And the idea of almsgiving, giving to the poor, that Hebrew word, tzedeka, is derived from righteous. So, so close in meaning was the idea of giving to the poor that it represented, it, it came from, it grew out of the term that just meant righteous living in general. We're supposed to look at this guy and be like, why is he so stinking selfish? Why is he doing this? And I, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, skip ahead here for just a second and say, I'm not, I'm not, there's not a punchline or a point here in the sermon where I'm gonna say, and you're just like this rich man. I'm not doing that, okay? So just take a breath and, and you know, let that go. If you're worried that was coming, it's not coming. Um, but we're meant to think, why doesn't he understand this? And why doesn't he take heed to what's happening around him. It would be so easy for him to act. But I do know in my life that there's, there's times when I just don't do that. I know there's good advice. I know somebody uh, told me what to do or what not to do. And, you know, I'm still waiting to see if, if anything's gonna happen. There gonna be any consequences or whatever. Reminds me of this story I heard of this guy getting pulled, pulled over by the police after like racing, like trying to like race a police officer. And, and the officer pulled him over. He's like, what are you doing, man? And he's like, I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know I couldn't do that. There's a, um, there's a, uh, this politician uh, back, I think from the 70s, a guy named Upton Sinclair, and I think about this quote of his sometimes related to this conversation. He said this about um, this, uh, this kind of society he was advocating for. He didn't really fit re really well into the two-party system. He said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Let's say that again. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. You ever, you ever thought that way? Like, if I just don't look, if I just don't see it, if I just pretend like I didn't hear it or I don't get informed enough about this thing, then maybe I'm actually not responsible for any of this. Maybe I don't need to do anything differently in my life. I mean, there's whole ideologies and whole political movements and systems in our culture that are built upon 
that idea? How do we remain ignorant enough about the suffering that we could relieve with our finances so that we can pretend like, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that was the speed limit. I didn't know that's what was going on there. Oh, that was a crosswalk? Oh, okay, now I know, right? I won't do it anymore. So in verse 22, uh, the only thing we know for sure that happens to all of us happens to these guys. They die. Verse 22, it says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. It's a, the picture is kind of like in the Middle Eastern culture, they lay, they, uh, the tables would have been on the floor and they would sit on the floor and it's not like Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, right? In the book of John, it says that John reclined on Jesus's chest, basically. And that was like a normal kind of thing to do. So the, so the, the poor man dies and he gets taken up and he's sitting at the table that he couldn't sit at in life. And he's leaning on the patriarch of all of his faith probably enjoying a great feast as Jesus describes in many of his parables. And then it says, the rich man also died and was buried. A little unceremonious. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, who had many sons, um, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So there's certainly this huge reversal of circumstances, right, in this parable. It's, it's kind of the opposite, and then it's revved up a notch. The rich man enjoyed all this stuff. Now he's in agony and he's hot. It's like Memphis in July where he is. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's like Long Beach, California or something where... Uh, where Lazarus is. And uh, the crazy thing here that we're meant to be like what, is like, what is wrong with this guy, this rich man, is he's in torment, he's in Hades, and what does he do? Who does he still ask for as if they're subservient to do something for him? Because he's the rich guy. He's the one that gets served by everybody. Who is he asking? It's your turn to say the name. Lazarus. Oh, that's how you say it. Think you're so cool because you don't have a lisp. So he's, he's in this terrible situation, but he's still thinking in terms of his position in society is going to be his salvation, is going to provide him relief, is going to give him comfort. He's still thinking, so he addresses Abraham as father. He's still claiming that he is a descendant of Abraham, but yet he ignored all of the very, very basic things of what it would meant to be the son of Abraham. And then on top of it, he asks Abraham to make Lazarus be his servant. So even in the afterlife, even as he is suffering, separated from his people and his faith, he's still thinking about his status as a rich man and what that should be able to get him. It's tragic. It's pitiful. It's even like kind of funny. It's like, are you kidding me, dude? 
What is this guy's deal? And verse 25 says, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. When we first started talking about this series and we were talking about it around the table, it felt there was, there is a, a, a popular idea that came up that we are trying to disassemble and destroy in anyone's minds who hears this sermon. And that that is that it's not right, it's bad to have money or have stuff if you're like actually a serious Christian. That you're either like got a knapsack and that's it and you have to beg everywhere you go and you're just relying on God for your, for your daily bread literally like on the streets doing stuff or you just need to be like, well, I can't do that, so I might as well just follow the system of the world, get everything I can for myself. I'll, you know, I'll round up for St. Jude after I buy my burrito, that kind of thing. I'll give a little sprinkle to uh, a church or a nonprofit occasionally, but it's kind of like this false dichotomy that's set up there, that I have this choice or that choice. And so since I can't do the knapsack thing, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do the other thing. The thing I hear about all the time, daily, that, I, that are smart financial decisions, yeah, right, most people, don't even, most people are living in credit card debt in our country right now, but we sort of say, let's do it that way. Let's take that bad advice that doesn't seem to be working well for anyone but the those that are already ultra rich. Um, so it's not bad to have stuff. It's not bad to have money. It's not bad to have financial security, to have a savings account, to not do stupid things with your money, to not run up a lot of credit card debt. And by the way, if you have run up credit card debt and you don't know what to do with your money and your parents didn't know, you guys didn't, you didn't get that passed down to you, uh, Robert Grisham is, is going to be leading this great finance workshop November 12th just to help any and all of us, me and my wife will be there, think through important financial issues because like I said in the beginning, we want to go deeper with this stuff than it is usually talked about. And I don't think there's any better place if you have someone equipped to do it, to talk about money than church actually, to have workshops than in church because if your spirituality is tied to how you possess things in your life and your will is an expression through money of what you want your world to look like, then there is a very slim chance you can learn how to manage money in a way that's going to actually cultivate and increase your spiritual capacity. And that's what we want to do. So uh, the rich man had good things in his life and Lazarus received bad things, but now Lazarus is comfort, comforted and you are in agony. And there's this huge chasm between you and him that can't be moved, it's fixed. And I think about Luke six, where Jesus looking at his disciples said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. 
You see, this, this chasm that is, was there, that was fixed there, that was placed there in this parable, it wasn't placed by God or an angel or anybody else. It was put there by Lazarus, I mean by the rich man. The rich man walked past this dude daily and went into his little or his big mansion and he celebrated. And Lazarus, it said he longed to get the crumbs from the table. So every day that the rich man walked past him, he created that chasm. He ran a rut, a straight line past compassion, past empathy, past the good advice of the Torah, of his faith, of his religion. And the chasm grew and it grew and it grew. That's why Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. There'll be, there'll be mansions for you there. And I'm not gonna rush to, but, oh, but you're saved by grace through, I'm not gonna rush to that right now because Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry to do it either. He stored up, the rich man spent all his treasure on earth. And when he got to the afterlife, he hadn't stored anything up there. Not a thing. Not even a window unit air conditioner. Could have at least had that maybe if he'd like given him some alms like one day or something. He could have at least had one of those kind, you gotta kind of bang it and the filter reset button's always on and it's like rattling on the inside. And, but nope, not even that. So Abraham answers him, or the rich man answers Abraham about after he explains the chasm to him, he said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Again, dude, this guy's not your servant. You're not the rich dude. You're not on top anymore. What, why can't you get this figured out, this straight in your head as you're sweating, right? He said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm, warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment? This is the question that, that I've been asking a lot, sitting with this parable for a few weeks now, is why does this rich man, what is, what is his barrier? What's his block? It's, it's not teaching. He, did, he didn't need more teaching. He didn't need more uh, entertaining ideas. He didn't need better theology he knew everything he needed to do in order to act, but he failed to act. And here, as the story continues and he is sweating in Hades, he's still operating out of the same framework, the same ideas that's meant for us to say like, come on, dude, show some humility. What are you thinking? Like, quit talking like, a, like Lazarus is gonna be your servant. That's, that's over, man. And so the question that I ask for myself and that I want us to be able to ask ourselves today is what is it that keeps us from following the good advice that we have? The things that we just don't want to act on even though we 
believe that there is something really important about those actions and specifically with our money, with how we spend our money. I wanna read this quote by uh, the modern day Saint Thomas Merton. He's a, uh, he was a monk, an American monk and uh, a mystic. And he, he read this, it's gonna be on the screen and, and it's a little bit dense, uh, but I, I want you to try to follow along because this is kind of what I hope that we can get out of this is the ideas here. He said, in order to become myself, I must cease to be what I always thought I wanted to be. And in order to find myself, I must go out of myself. And in order to live, I have to die. People imagine that they can only find themselves by asserting their own desires and ambitions and appetites in a struggle with the rest of the world. They try to become real by imposing themselves on other people, by appropriating for themselves some share of the limited supply of created goods, and thus emphasizing the difference between themselves and the other men and women who have less than they or nothing at all. The sense of, do you, do you see that part? Do you hear that part? This sense of grasping for an identity by making a contrast, a social and economic hierarchy. They can only, they can only, uh, they can only see one way of becoming real, cutting themselves off from people, great chasm, and building a barrier of contrast and distinction between themselves and other men. When we act that way, when, when we assume that what gives us our value, our worth, our identity is about what we have secured, what possessions, what money, what salaries we have procured that someone else doesn't have, when that is our final and authoritative sense of security and satisfaction, we cease to believe God has anything to offer us, any salvation for us that our identity is secure in the things that we own and that we possess or that we could in the future own and possess. And we create that chasm. Do you think the rich man knew he was making that chasm? I don't know. I don't know. So the questions are, what do we need money for? We need it for, we need it for a lot of things. Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money, the scriptures say, is. What do we need money for? And then another question, what do we need salvation from? What do we need salvation from? And behind both of those questions is whose advice should we trust? And here's how the story ends. Abraham replied to sending Lazarus to go tell the rich man's brothers about what happened. Like, dude, it gets real. You should actually listen. 
Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. I already got all the good advice you need. So Abraham says, no, I'm not sending Lazarus anywhere. And in verse 30, the, 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 rich, the rich man still, he's bartering. He's not even begging. He's just sort of trying, trying to like logic his way through it. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he finishes here, this parable ends. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So that brings us back to the, the question we started. Like, who, what's it take for us to listen to good advice? What's it, what's it take to take seriously that our, what we own, our possessions, how we think about money and what we do with it, how we steward it, how seriously we take that, that it has to do with deeply spiritual things, that it has to do with our relationship to other people and to God. Even at the time Jesus spoke these words, and I'm closing here, the idea of salvation, the concept of it in the Hebrew scriptures was about God saving people from their material problems. Egypt, forcing us to work back-breaking labor every day, building those shiny, cool pyramids, right? The, the incoming Babylonians, Poverty and destitution and sickness and illness. The God's sal God salvation, it's coming. It's going to rescue me. It's going to save me. So if our spirituality, and I believe much of it in the, in the United States, Christianity has, if it becomes only about some esoteric spiritual thing that does not impact the material reality of right now, what is it that we are really trusting our lives with? And I just want to say this about, we believe as Christians, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and that provided salvation for us. But how could we construe that so that we would say a physical material act that God went through on earth that required pain and uncomfortability and suffering and poverty of heart, mind, and soul, that that very material act should not have any material response in us who are saved by it. No, that, that, that ain't the Bible I read. So, we have many generous people at, at Christ City Church, to the church, to their community. And I'm really happy to be a part of a, a church that, that has people that see that vision. And so I'm not gonna say like, hey, everybody, you just ramp up your giving or ramp up this or that. But I am gonna ask this, I am gonna ask that you continue as we do this work as we talk about spiritual entrepreneurship, as we talk about these other aspects uh, of financial advice like we are this morning, that you ask yourself the questions, that you ask yourself, what is money for? How is money impacting me spiritually? Do I use money 
or is money using me? And as we come to the table, as we come to the table that we all share together and that we all partake of together, we remember that the grace of God covers us, inspires us, and gives us what we need to take action in our lives of faith. Let's pray.